It's hard to define what participation is. But we all know that it is the prerequisite for development. Without people acting, shaping, discussing and building things together, there can be no true or meaningful development for the state or for the citizen. In the social sector, the idea of participation, what it entails, is given a lot of airtime. From the way we use toolkits to bring communities together to be a part of a plan, to the theories surrounding different types of participation. We talk about it a lot. How do you talk about participation without mentioning Amartya Sen? He's been one of the biggest proponents of the importance of participation in development. And it's an integral part of his thesis, positing development as being not just about economic growth or indicators that relate to it, but rather about well-being and the ability of people to articulate and exercise their fundamental freedoms. This is development through the lens of freedom. These freedoms are determined by social and economic circumstances and need to be protected by political and civil rights. Being able to participate is a form of freedom. And participation is hindered by unfreedoms such as poverty, inequality or tyranny. True development can happen only when these obstacles are removed. Welcome back to In the Field, a show about India and development hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. In the Field is supported by Rohini Nilekhani Philanthropies. The perfect relationship between citizen and state is almost like a dance. In order for the state to function, people need to be at the center, building it, making it better and engaging with it. And the state needs to see that and move, change and reach out too. A lot like the figures in the Matisse painting, La Danse. In this episode, we meet people working to make us participate better, to get the figures in the dance to read each other's cues and move a little bit closer. that people face in India and any other part of the world is not just about being poor, it is about facing a whole bunch of barriers that are thrown at you simply by the fact that you're poor. And they're not necessarily psychological barriers, people are talking about the scarcity of choice and so on. Because it is barriers thrown by the fact of power inequalities, barriers thrown by the fact that you are subject to people's whims almost on a routine basis that gives you very little control over your lives. So in effect, my very strong belief is that what development needs to do more of is to give the opportunity for people to have more control over their lives. That's economist Vijendra Rao speaking about participation, democracy and development. He's hinting at what Akhil Gupta, an anthropologist at UCLA, calls structural violence, violence that is inflicted by the state on its people. Gupta refers to political, administrative and judicial processes that poor, disadvantaged and marginalized people are the greatest victims of. For example, complicated bureaucratic mechanisms that can make people vulnerable to the vicissitudes of their own circumstances. How many of us have known someone who has had to run from pillar to post to get a simple bureaucratic procedure followed? How many people do we know who use informal networks of influence? Employers, friends, someone of someone who knows someone in the government to help navigate bureaucratic processes. Don't just think about corruption or having to grease palms to make things happen. There's something more subtle at work here. The prolonged violence comes from the state's endless apathy. 
the inaction that comes from an overly wrought, slow, complex bureaucracy that tests the endurance of the citizen, to her detriment, especially if she is poor. And this is how many have come to know of and see the state. It has become so normalized, so part of the MO of what happens when citizens interact with the state. And when the state does speak, it communicates in broadcast mode. See, generally, uh, government communicates in one way. It's unidirectional. You just say and the public has to listen. Dandora uh, Pitna type thing, you know, you go to the market, make an announcement. You publish it in the gazette, it's there. You put it on the notice board, it's there. There's nothing, there's no provision to talk back. You just heard Prashant Nair, a young IS officer from the Kerala cadre, who knows this all too well. He has a simple, basic way of looking at things. The state is us and we are the state. As a civil servant, particularly at the local level, he is acutely aware of this apathy and in his eyes, beyond the formal channels, the government needs to find ways to bring empathy back into the working of the administration. And that, to him, is key to getting people to implicate themselves more in governance and contribute productively to their community. I felt uh, people want a more uh, compassionate administration, first of all. Uh, so all interventions should have the compassionate touch. Who gives it is the question. Uh, see, the, it's the government servant who is the interactive you know, point. Okay, he's the visible arm of the state. So you expect a bit of compassion and a bit of um, understanding, first of all. Then comes the rest of the things. We catch up with Prashant in his office in Delhi, where he's just moved after being the district collector of Koriko district in Kerala. Down a warren of government corridors we go, passing through a number of checks until we reach a wooden door with a slightly oversized heavy gold nameplate, perhaps a little too big for the door. Prashant Nair was incredibly busy. We can't begin to recount the number of times a bell rang, or a file came in, or his phone buzzed. A TV played Malayalam news in the background throughout all of this, on mute. During his stint in Korikod, or Calicut, Prashant Nair became really well known for a program called Compassionate Korikod, it was the beginning of Collector Bro, as he came to be known, and it began with a Facebook page that opened up the collectorate to the people. I remember one of the best moments was when one person came to my office and gave me a written complaint, and also adding that, uh, you know, two days back I had sent this complaint on Facebook. But, of course, as if I don't expect any action on that, Facebook is just fun part, isn't it? So I'm giving you the hard copy here, why don't you take action? And the moment I saw that, I remembered that, uh, yes, I, I had seen this and this was sorted the day before. Okay. And we had replied on Facebook. This guy has not checked it. So, you know, it's an aha moment for us also. Chalo, we got a, you know, excellent case. So then I, I just went through that and told, boss, your issue has been sorted out and it has already been replied through Facebook. And the you know, astonishment and you know, unbelievable you know, expression that guy had on his face, I'll never forget. And I, I, as a citizen, that is what I also would prefer. If I was sending a message and if I get it sorted out, you know, almost 90% um, of the issues uh, that come to you as a collector require just a phone call from your office. It's just that kind of simple intervention that's required. 
The ex-district collector saw his strength in diagnosing problems and lending a level of credibility that allowed citizens to trust the government when they were asked to participate. And it was about re-establishing a citizen's role as a member of the community. You do because you care. It was not about emphasizing who the donor is or playing up the chance for a show-off each selfie. Anonymity was insisted upon, and the collector managed the Facebook page himself, creating a strong feedback loop with citizens. I still remember the first experiment kind of thing which we did. You know, we were sitting like this in the office, uh, discussing certain so-called out-of-box stuff and all that. We had a wonderful group there. Uh, and at around 9 o'clock in the night, when we were about to wind up, we decided to do something. Something in a sense. Uh, we had the children's home there uh, and the kids, they had their examinations going on and it was a weekend. They wanted a break. So we wanted to do something different for them. So uh, we thought, okay, let's take them to the beach. Uh, the, the, these children's home kids, they have restricted um, you know, access to public spaces and all that. It's kind of confined. So taking them to the beach is a good idea, but then there should be something more. So the night, uh, around 9 o'clock, we are putting up a post on the official page saying that next day evening, 6, we have a drum circle. Guys, please come over with whatever percussion instrument you have. And you won't believe next day, 6 in the evening, we had more than 1,000 people in the beach. We had people driving down from Bangalore, from Trichur, from Kochi, professional bands who came down uh, without any special invitation, nothing, just a Facebook post. And that night was uh, unforgettable. It was memorable. And one thing led to another. A website was set up for Compassionate Cori Code, which institutionalized the array of efforts from engagement to volunteering, funding and participation. All the schemes or initiatives they set up, from Operation Soleimani, which preserved the dignity of the hungry, to Yo Apupa, a hip way to get people to spend time with the elderly, or Savadi Girigiri, which protected school-going children from the wrath of local bus conductors. All these initiatives found ways to implicate local citizens to act where the government could not. Recognizing the limitations of the government, the collectorate had joined the dots so citizens could step in and take on the work it couldn't. Initially, we did take up very small things. Uh, Cleaning up a few ponds, initially that's a small thing. But as and when you uh, progress, you can take up massive scale operations. Uh, really huge ponds. I remember we start started cleaning huge ponds. Uh, 16-acre pond we cleaned up on a single day. That was the starting up for the major campaign. See, the, the, this was an ongoing uh, you know, scheme. Central government fund was there for cleaning ponds during summer. Uh, the fund could be used for buying um, refreshments for the volunteers who turn up for this. Now, every year, this has been there. Oh, who eats... The refreshments is a question. Probably the village officer eats the funds <laughs> more than you know anyone eating the refreshment or any pond getting cleaned in the process. Uh, so the only thing which we did differently was that we publicized it in a language that appeals to the masses. Just said that, uh, come on guys, just join us, have biryani, we'll have fun. If you understand the connotations of Malayalam when we say yeah. uh, biryani, biryani daram, I mean, kolangoriyal biryani daram. Kolangoriyal has another entirely different meaning. Uh, and giving biryani, you know, that, that's something which you really offer to a Malayali, especially in Calicut. 
but people who come to you know participate in this they they didn't come for getting biryani they came for the fun part of it participation counts most when it's local that's when it has the greatest potential for social change the most powerful movements for change begin at the bottom with people organizing deliberating even protesting and doing the mundane yet hard work of convincing people to come together and talk about what they want what they need and what is being denied to them many believe that spaces for this type of community engagement are shrinking In India, the 73rd and 74th amendments of the Indian Constitution, perhaps one of the greatest decentralization experiments in the world, pledges to devolve governance to the local level through gram panchayats and urban local bodies. It also created constitutionally mandated spaces for participation in decision making through gram sabhas, ward committees and ward sabhas. We're in Delhi to meet Roshan Shankar. a young party worker for the Aam Aadmi Party in Delhi. The Aam Aadmi Party is always in the news, at the receiving end of bouquets and brickbats in equal measure. What's less spoken about is their grassroots and bottom-up governance model, which they honed in 2014, in between the two Delhi elections of 2013 and 2015. Roshan was deeply involved with the party in this critical year. between up winning 28 seats in the delhi assembly forming the government then dissolving it leading to president's rule and before their comeback in the second delhi elections in 2015 it was a short one year period when the 28 elected representatives went back to their constituencies and attempted to rebuild a bottom up ground up conversation which ultimately fed into the party manifesto for the people by the people We spoke to him about this period. So the first meetings were informational where you talk about uh, what an MLA is, what an MLA does, what are their rights and responsibilities, what are their duties which uh, was new to most people. Um, uh, a lot of people actually uh, laughed at the fact that uh, MLAs had come back to ask questions. Uh, a lot of people were very I mean they were angry almost to the fact that they had already done their work. of electing someone so i think uh, that taught us initially itself that uh, when uh, contact and democracy has been lost for so long reestablishing contact is always awkward roshan is young a computer science postgraduate from stanford who instead of pursuing his phd to become yet another indian academic in the west decided to come back to delhi and become an aap party worker we met him on his field day one day every week when he's out checking up on the projects he's in charge of right now it's water and sanitation now delhi is uh, administratively divided into seven uh, parliamentary constituencies uh, 11 uh, district uh, seven parliamentary constituencies 11 districts and 70 assembly constituencies now below that is the level that is called the ward uh, which is an aggregation of uh, about 170-80000 people uh, which ag- three to four wards put together make a uh, Uh, an assembly constituency in delhi and finally in the in what we envision to be the last uh, level of local governance is the mohalla sabha the mohalla sabha is uh, is a name for a town hall meeting um, for an urban setting in india it's been enshrined and described in reasonable detail in the 73rd and 74th amendment but uh, to think very simply about it it's a group of 3 to 6000 people 
um, so which meant that Delhi was divided into about 3,000 Mohalla Sabhas under 70 MLAs, out of which 28 MLAs were ours. So we had influence over about 1,200 Mohalla Sabhas. The Delhi government decided to hold regular Mohalla meetings or Sabhas. Each Mohalla has a Mohalla coordinator who would conduct meetings along with the district magistrate who would organize them. Citizens could then debate on MLA local area development funds and other government schemes. Later, the government also set up a citizen local area development fund for direct implementation through these sabhas. A part of our door-to-door -door campaigning was, OK, if you don't like us, please come to our general body meeting, come to this MLA meeting and tell us that you don't like us and tell us why you don't like us or maybe engage with us on an issue. So actually, uh, uh, very oddly, uh, the local meeting setup gave us a political inroad into places that ordinarily might have uh, absolutely refused to engage with us. Um, over time, I think uh, both the political benefits as well as the engagement benefits started getting seen. So a lot of uh, follow-up questions from the community started coming. A lot of MLAs were being pressured by their community because once a public meeting happens and a public voices a certain opinion for a certain project or a bouquet of projects in their community, uh, two months later, they start wondering where it is. And once you start that commitment contract of saying, I, I'm going to deliver on a certain promise that you've asked, uh, those people also start coming back and say, uh, was it a sham? Was it just a public meeting for, was it just another political rally? A mahalla or a neighborhood has around 3,000 to 4,000 people. Delhi has a number of communities, affluent and dirt poor, that live cheek by jowl in these neighborhoods. The Mahala Sabhas brought together these citizens from different communities who live alongside each other, but would perhaps never have shared a space together, let alone had a conversation about their neighborhood's development. Over the six months, I think uh, the 28 MLAs uh, held at least five town hall meetings in a week. And if you aggregate that over a period of, of a few months, merging that between a political campaign and uh, the work that an MLA has to do in their constituency, you had at least a thousand meetings where they didn't look like a rally, where it didn't look like a political meeting, but there were uh, debates about local governance in those areas. So the sabhas would take place in neighborhood common spaces, a school, a maidan, a mandi. Out of the 3,000 to 4,000 people in the area, typically around 400 would participate. There would be a small dais, and the people would sit around to discuss local issues. Healthcare, education, water. I remember this incident in uh, Tilaknagar, which is uh, in one of the Mohalla Sabhas, was uh, exclusively uh, uh, well dominated by uh, supporters and members of the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh. Uh, a lot of them were educationists, a lot of them were principals and teachers and uh, parents who send their kids to a Saraswati Shishu Mandir. Uh, regardless of what they thought of our ideology, they wanted to engage about education there. And they, even at the MLA LAD meeting, where we were talking about local governance and roads and sewers more than we were talking about really schools, they started, there were questions about, can you do something about our schools? Can you do something about the government schools? So I think uh, if you find allies on outcome rather than party, they, you can talk to a lot more people. There has been for some time now a feeling that there is a gap between the citizen and the state. 
Both the district collector and the Amadmi Party try to close this gap. One informally by calling for a vast network of volunteers implicated in their communities to become partners with the government. The other formally by ensuring spaces mandated for participation and deliberation are used. One uses it to make the institution more accountable, the other to drive political agency. Part of the government's job is to ensure that rights and entitlements of citizens, especially those who face disadvantage, reach them. So let's say you're part of a government program where you're entitled to and receive some kind of benefit. How do you know what your right is? How do you access the information, especially in parts of India that are poorly connected, and you may not be able to navigate the system to find out? Think of it as a supply and demand problem of information and data. On the one hand, people are woefully unaware of what the government can do and what it does. And on the other hand, being visible in the eyes of the government, being able to get what is rightfully yours, is still a step behind from being able to actively participate in local village planning. Yet a significant cause of this chasm is poor access and information. Aniket Deogar is the CEO of a social enterprise called Hakdashak. Its powerful name describes exactly what they do. They use technology and have built a powerful yet simple rules and eligibility engine to help candidates find out their rights, their hucks, and then guide them in accessing and benefiting from them. And it does this at scale. It sounds simple enough, but belies the obfuscating mass of procedure and information required to actually know, apply, navigate corruption and benefit from a government scheme. And many states have around 1,500 to 2,000 schemes with various criteria of eligibility. That's where the Hagdarshak comes in and says that, one, in the rural areas, they're solving the issue of uh, uh, bridging the gap of literacy. Because their citizens also face the issue of literacy because they fulfill complicated forms. But the second, in semi-urban, semi-rural areas where literacy is not an issue, is that they are solving the issue of convenience. Because then people don't have to take out time from their daily jobs and do all the running around, the Hakdarshak can do that for you. Aniket is everything you expect from a young, energetic social entrepreneur. He squeezed in an interview with us between multiple meetings and events, and although sounding a bit tired when we started our interview, talking about his work seemed to rejuvenate him. How Hakdarshak was started reveals a mixture of serendipity, unstoppable drive, and hard, hard work. Aniket tells us of an early encounter with a 72-year-old woman from a village near Pune. While pilot testing their rules engine, they found that she was eligible for a second pension, aside from the widow pension she received. She ended up getting a second pension worth 3,000 rupees thanks to Hakdarshak. Now, when we went back, I went back and wanted to ask her, you know, did she find this useful and all. She was first to the kind of uh, response that she gave me on the first part that, you know, for a citizen, A, to know that this is my entitlement. And I was not aware and suddenly I'm making them aware is a big thing because this is their constitutional right to get these schemes. Secondly, when we asked, I asked them that, you know, what are you going to do with this money? Her response was amazing. She said that, you know, this three, out of this 3,000, I'm going to put 1,000 rupees in a post office savings bank account, 1,000 I'm going to use for tuitions and other uh, education things for my grandchildren. And with the other money, I'm going to use now buy a better brand of Atta, better brand of biscuits. Uh, I'm going to probably buy Horlicks from the local uh, village shop. I mean, that 
so that impact a uh, very early on was something from the ground uh, in our first testing itself that gave huge validation to what we were doing and that was the first kind of anecdote from the ground which really made us believe as a team as a founding team that this is really powerful on the one hand haktashak is tailored for the rural setting where you have problems like poor connectivity a lack of employment opportunities and poor literacy Hakdarshak uses an entrepreneur model to build an army of local hakdarshaks and for a small fee apart from informing you the hakdarshak will also assist you in filling the application addressing the convenience factor that also draws their users Aniket also explains that hakdarshak found it easier to work with women piggybacking on the self help group network to reach far into communities now operational in eight states Many states are keen to work with them and see them as a valuable resource for local functionaries in doing their job and not as meddlers. We also have been able to change the perception or kind of mindset of a lot of government officials. We have got great responses from district collectors and their teams where they have liked our idea and said we will use your platform and do camps. We will give it to our block officers. So definitely uh, there is a changing perception of the government at the same time I think Hakdarshak is what it it is actually doing on ground is showing a very possible and a very good public private partnership where you know we can come in and be those facilitators on ground where there is a lot of because government at the end of the day is just again another entity and for them to reach out at the last mile sometimes to the last person everyone does become a logistical issue because end of the day the if if we are able to disburse 10 crore worth of government money in a year that that in effect to the citizen is still coming from the government so the government still takes the credit and it should if people are to participate in ways that make institutions more equitable and better reflect their evolving needs they need to be armed with information so that they can deliberate decide and actively control change and impact their local environments how does this work when much of development policy is formulated through an extractive process especially for the communities being studied and for whom the policies are being shaped what would happen if data so regularly collected across the sector was put back in the hands of the people they sampled how would it affect the way in which they participate Would they come to village planning meetings with their head held high and with a clearer idea of what they thought needed to be done? P-tracking or participatory tracking was a project run by researchers with the state government of Tamil Nadu that was designed to democratize data through their SHG project Puduvarvu. The idea was for people to own their own data and use it for local governance and decision making. Vijendra Rao, an economist at the World Bank, whom you heard earlier, led a team of social scientists who worked with RV Shajivana, Puduvarvu's deputy director. She, having worked on many donor-driven projects, was excited to champion this idea, to be more innovative, and to find more democratic ways of working. Here is Netra Palni Swami, the project coordinator, explaining the project's intent. So what we wanted to do was to take this kind of typical development researcher thought process and have it be implemented entirely by these groups these community groups right so on shajivana side you know her challenge was to say okay like at this time the project covered at 1 to 2 million women like how do you make something participatory when you're working at that scale 
So the you know, so then we came up with this idea along with her that, okay, we would take two very, very different districts in Tamil Nadu. One was Thiruvannamalai and the other one was Thani. Thiruvannamalai being more peri-urban uh, and Thani being much more rural and tribal. And we would ask networks of women, which, you know, was a very well set up network of self-help groups because PVP had been functioning in these areas for about six years by now. And they would sit together and in, the, in their respective districts, actually, and come up with you know, just an idea of what they thought constituted a good life. But if you had to go ask someone, if somebody came to ask me, what, what would you like in your life? And what would you like to see change from year to year? What would I think about? From the indicators, they worked with these women to transform them into questions. Questions that the women wanted answered, but that could also shed light on larger socioeconomic issues. At the end of three months, the local women had data from 32,000 women representing 32,000 households. But with little or no numerical or statistical skills, how would these women analyze the data? So P-tracking needed a simple, intuitive system to analyze and represent the data through visualizations. And for that, they turned to the MIT Media Lab. Here's how they figured out how to depict one of the indicators. We were trying to assess intra-household bargaining power. And we basically came up with these systems where you had faces, male faces, female faces. But when we drew those pictures, the people in the village said, oh, these look, people look like nothing like us. The men should have moustaches, women should have bindis, they should have plaits. Who are these women? They look like some foreigners. This is how we look like. So we spent a lot of time making these people look like Tamilians, you know, in rural Tamilians. There's a very famous visualization in statistical graphics known as a stem leaf plot. P-tracking took that stem leaf plot and with the community came up with a conception of how they would show social aspects of their families. So for instance, they devised a flower diagram, literally a flower in a flower pot. The height of the flower represented the age at marriage. The number of leaves was the number of children they had. If the flower was closed, that is a bud, the woman had no say in the choice of her spouse. If it was open, she had a say. If the flower was yellow, it means she married someone who was not her relative. If it was red, it meant she did. Looking at that data, what were the priorities that they could decide? I mean, you know, our village, always when they wanted to look at data, it happened routinely in these villages. They wanted to compare their village to the next door village, always. They had uh, questions uh, on, one beautiful question they came up with on hunger, which was ended up being very effective, was they sort of said, you know, when we ask questions on hunger, we sort of go through these nutrition intake things and just measure it out, you know, but they had a very simple question. Does the person who eats last in the family get enough to eat? Well, basically, who's the person who eats last in the family? It's the mother of the household, I mean, the, the woman, the, you know, and the question really is, is that woman getting enough to eat because obviously she's feeding her kids and her husband before she eats? So it's a very empowering question. And that entire nutrition thing was depicted on a banana leaf with different types of food. So if you had an empty banana leaf, they were, they were going hungry. If there was more rice, and they got more rice. They got more vegetables, so, so no vegetables. So these visualizations totally resonated with them. The P-tracking experiment was found to be quite effective. A randomized controlled trial found that the question on hunger was very effective in reducing its prevalence in those villages that got the visualization. In Gram Sabhas, where the visualizations were used, they improved decision-making, and people could see the data, thus feeding directly into decisions of budget allocations. 
rather than the typical way of collecting data where everything is first kind of centralized into a server and then you give different people you know differing kinds of access and permission to use the data uh, we flipped that around where we said that you know the village's data you know will be on each village's computer before it's like exported to the server so i think that the first level is access which is provided by design and the second one is how do people get to use this I mean, of course, any citizen can go to the Gram Sabha and talk about and raise issues, but then we also need to use the data to strengthen the capacity of the state to respond to these kinds of problems. Much of our work on social observatory, and I think what we try to do uh, and probably succeeded the most in terms of design with peer tracking is the idea that research needs to be actionable, but at the same time, we also need to be sensitive to the idea that you know sometimes you need answers to come faster than a certain rigorous method would allow you to do. If P-tracking is taken further beyond its first project, it could mean that communities will own their own data that they can use to negotiate and deliberate with the government. And governments higher up will have access to wonderful rich data that will help improve implementation and action. And finally, researchers will be able to run all their experiments in parallel too. This episode is about participation. And you can't talk about participation without thinking about the relationship between the citizen and the state. But true participation has prerequisites. It can only start to happen when there is some degree of equality, when rights and entitlements are enshrined, when information and data are in the hands of the people and spaces for participation made more inclusive. Bureaucrats like Prashant Nair or Arvi Shajivana from the Tamil Nadu project, one fairly early in his career, the other a seasoned veteran, show that while the state may be sluggish in parts, there are committed officials who want to make a difference any way they can. And people like Roshan are coming back, leaving lucrative careers to work at the grassroots. Think of it like this. Good participation in local democracy allows us to take control of our lives. But it requires tools, processes and spaces through which equity and representation are achieved. And there are many people who are working on some fraction of each of these things looking at it as a supply versus demand problem, as a market solution or a state intervention, or by using data alongside communication, or for political or institutional transformation, or with just simple compassion. Yeah, you know, state is a very powerful organization. It's very powerful. You can uh, finish off people. It's, it's, a, it's a fact. State, uh, if the state decides, it can do anything. Bureaucracy being part of the state is equally dangerous. But then, if if you have the priorities right, uh, things can be completely you know different. You can show your tough ways to certain people where it matters, and be extremely soft towards you know that's equity, not just equality kind of thing. No? Uh, I'm really fascinated by uh, the Gandhi talisman. Okay, Gandhi talisman, which all of us study in our NCRT book. I keep asking everywhere whenever I go and have any talk. Uh, nobody reads that actually, <laughs> because in the first page, nobody cares to really read that. But Gandhi's talisman is something um, that's that has really fascinated me because that's a very powerful administrative tool. It's a very powerful decision-making tool. Gandhi's talisman says, whenever you are in doubt or when the self becomes too much with you, Recall the face of the poorest and the weakest man or woman whom you may have seen and ask yourself if the step you contemplate is going to be of any use to them. Will they gain anything by it? Will it restore them to a control over their own life and destiny? 
In other words, will it lead to Swaraj for the hungry and spiritually starving millions? Then you will find your doubts and yourself melt away. So in, in, in my district, for instance, the weakest and most vulnerable person was uh, probably that one guy whom I uh, saw in the mental hospital in the solitary cell who was uh, eating his own excreta and sitting naked uh, in the middle of his you know, uh, excreta. Now, uh, if he becomes the citizen number one, and we try to work towards that, you know, you grade downwards from there, things completely change, you know. Then uh, your metro station doesn't become your priority. Highways don't become your priority. Your priority becomes something else. And that's the end of the show. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Prashant Nair, IAS, Roshan Shankar, Vijendra Rao, Netra Paraniswamy, Aniket Yogar, and PR Ganapati. In the Field is produced and hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. Priya Desai is our associate producer. Our music was made by Hollis Coates. Third Eye Recording Studio does the sound, and Rohini Nilekini Philanthropies helps us do all of the above. So until next time, subscribe for updates on our website and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at In the Field India.